0: This is The Guardian.
1: Hey, I'm Shantae Joseph. I'm a writer and broadcaster, and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday, launching on the 3rd of November. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Looking for your next
2: great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.
0: What if, the next time that you went to go and see your doctor, alongside a packet of pills, they prescribed you a dance lesson? While you might be slightly taken aback or even delighted... This isn't a new idea. The concept of social prescribing, where health professionals can refer their patients to a range of non-medical local services to support their health and well-being, has been around for decades. But now it's really beginning to gain some traction. A new trial in parts of England will be exploring whether sports, arts and outdoor activities like roller skating or gardening could help young people aged 11 to 18 with their mental health while they remain on NHS waiting lists for formal treatment. It's a really enticing idea, but is there enough evidence to prescribe surfing for anxiety? From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Susan Smith, you're a GP and a professor of general practice at Trinity College, Dublin. And along with colleagues, you recently published a paper looking at the evidence for social prescribing, something that's becoming increasingly common for GPs to recommend to their patients. But before we get into that, I'd really like to understand more about what social prescribing is and what it entails.
1: Okay, well, social prescribing is a process through which health professionals can refer their patients out into the community, usually to a person called a link worker or a social prescriber, who then connects that person with community resources based on their individual needs. And the idea is that it can address the social determinants of health which probably account for about 20% of presentations to general practice. A common presentation might be that they are under a lot of stress or pressure. They may have low mood or anxiety. They may have physical health problems relating to lack of exercise. The clinician would recognize that perhaps an alternative approach, rather than prescribing more medicines, would be to consider a kind of a social prescribing response to the patient's presentation.
0: So once you get prescribed a link worker, that link worker helps you to get involved in something in the community, a group or an activity. What kinds of activities might you end up doing?
1: So the idea would be that the person meets the link worker and the link worker makes an assessment of their individual needs. But the link worker also uh, has mapped all the available resources in their community. And then based on the patient's needs, they'll refer them. It could be to some kind of men's shed. It could be to a gardening program. It could be to an exercise or walking group. And a lot of the activities can be designed to increase a person's social connectedness. But link workers can also refer for financial support. So if somebody is under a lot of stress because of maybe the cost of living crisis, a link worker would be in a position to know where the community resources are to support that person.
0: So it sounds like it's potentially quite wide ranging, the sort of services that you're put in touch with. Tell me a bit more about the rationale behind this kind of treatment. What's the thinking of getting people to engage with these sorts of services?
1: Well, we know that health outcomes, really only about 20% of health outcomes Can be accounted for by health service delivery and the rest are down to things like health behaviors and socioeconomic factors and geography where a person lives what their community is like to live in so the rationale is that by addressing what these social determinants of health are is that it can help improve health outcomes for individuals
0: Intuitively, it does feel like this would work, you know, getting people active and involved in something in their community and engaging with others. To me, it makes sense. I know that, you know, when I go out, I like to go rowing. I get to meet people and chat to them, and I'm doing something active, and afterwards, I feel really great. But of course, medicine and the fact that this is prescribed, it does need to be evidence based. So, what is the scientific evidence out there to support social prescribing?
1: Well, we we came at this uh, based on, we have a PhD programme that's looking at people living with multiple long-term conditions. And I agree, we wanted to see what the strength of the evidence was to support the clinical and cost-effectiveness of social prescribing. And we were aware that there were several reviews that had been previously published, but they might have included a very wide range of different study designs and methodologies. Many of them included evaluations where there weren't control or comparison groups. And the reason it's so important to have a comparison group is that You can't really determine the effectiveness of an intervention unless you compare a very similar population who are not having the intervention at the same time. So we decided that we wanted to conduct a rigorous piece of research where we would only include study designs that had a comparison group. We looked at the evidence going right back over the last 30 to 40 years up until last year.
0: In terms of evaluating the effectiveness of social prescribing, it must be really difficult to do when social prescribing often happens alongside other treatments. Let's say if you're suffering from depression, you might be given a medical treatment as well, perhaps antidepressants.
1: Yes, these evaluations are complex. There's no doubt about that. Now, we weren't able to include studies if the social prescribing was embedded in other interventions like you know, counselling services or medical treatments for depression. We only included studies where you could isolate the effect of the link worker doing the social prescribing. Essentially what you want to do is you want to identify somebody who's suitable for link workers uh, and social prescribing and then they're randomly allocated to get it or to wait to get it in three months' time and then you compare the outcomes across the two of them.
0: So you're looking at studies where you can compare groups who were prescribed social prescribing with groups who weren't to see what their outcomes were and how those differed what did you end up finding
1: the search which was across 11 different databases we you know identified a possible 20,000 or more studies and this was actually whittled down using a very structured process to eight studies Given the the interest and the investment in social prescribing, that's not a very large number of studies to base evidence on.
0: Even though you only ended up with eight studies out of the thousands that you initially found, I wonder, was there any key takeaways that you could still make from what you were looking at?
1: What they showed us was that it is possible to conduct robust evaluations of social prescribing, so we know it can be done because these studies have done it. And what it suggested to us was that in the the small number of studies that had more intensive interventions targeting people living with multiple long-term conditions, were actually more likely to show uh, effectiveness. And it's very important that evidence will inform how we design social prescribing, because in in the UK and in Ireland, social prescribers or link workers are being rolled out in community networks, and they're often covering populations of about 50,000 people. So one individual link worker doing social prescribing is not going to be able to cover 50,000 people effectively and we need to make decisions about how we will use that resource most effectively. So our systematic review suggests that we need to be targeting this valuable resource towards people who really need intervention but also that they're likely to need more intensive intervention over time.
0: It's interesting that there is evidence pointing towards social prescribing being more effective when it's intensive and potentially for those who have multiple conditions. But how do you think we could get a clearer picture on when and where social prescribing is appropriate?
1: I mean, I think we need to build robust evaluations into our services as we develop them. I completely agree with your earlier point. It seems intuitively the case that social prescribing and connecting people with each other and encouraging physical activity is going to benefit people. But it is also possible that it, you know, there are alternative approaches that may be more effective. And I think if we really want to have evidence-based policy, we need to ensure that when we're funding services like social prescribing, that we put some of that money into the evaluation of the services and that those evaluations are robust and have comparison groups.
0: Susan, although there isn't a lot of evidence available, I can't help but go back to this sense that social prescribing, whether it's activities that connect you to the community or get you active, or whether it's help with things like finances, could be really beneficial. And I can imagine that GPs also really appreciate having this in their toolkit to address those social problems that then go on to affect health. But saying that, To me, all of this seems to be pointing towards a much, much bigger problem, which is the lack of social and community care.
1: Absolutely. And certainly the policy towards provision of link workers doing social prescribing is designed to try and and connect health and, and social care. And GPs do really like to have this kind of toolkit available to them. But we have a limited amount of money for what we support. So we need to ensure that we're doing what's the most cost-effective interventions. It's also really important that we deliver our interventions to the communities that need them the most.
0: And I can imagine that's going to become increasingly important with the cost-of-living crisis, where some communities are going to be hit a lot harder than others.
1: Absolutely. And we know that that's going to impact on their ability to buy nutritious food, their ability to heat their homes, all of those things that will have a very serious impact on both physical and mental health.
0: So, Susan, is there anyone out there who's pushing for this kind of system? Are there people in the medical community or policymakers who are really taking social prescribing seriously and looking at the kind of issues that you've been talking
1: about Oh, I I think there's definitely a lot of interest in doing this in the best way that we can. And there's a very strong social prescribing network that's supporting the rollout and evaluation of social prescribing. There's also a really key group of GPs. uh, It's called the Deep End. I don't know if you've come across it. And it, it originated in Scotland, but it's now popping up everywhere. And we have a group in Ireland also and what they are, they're GPs working in disadvantaged areas. So one of the included studies in our systematic review was based in deep end practices in Scotland. And we've also completed a trial in deep end practices in Ireland. So GPs in working in the most disadvantaged communities, they really understand the value of these types of interventions for their patients, because we know that people in the most disadvantaged areas develop multiple long term conditions about 11 years earlier than those in the most affluent areas. And they also have more complex combinations of mental and physical health conditions. So we really need to be addressing those needs first. Susan,
0: that's been so fascinating. Thank you so much.
1: It's been a pleasure and I really hope that it can uh, build on the evidence base to support what is likely to be a very effective intervention to help people uh, improve their health outcomes.
0: Thanks again to Professor Susan Smith. You can find links to our coverage of social prescribing on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And the Guardian has some exciting podcasts coming up for you this week. First up is Politics Weekly America as it begins its road trip across the country in the lead up to the midterm elections. Join Johnny Friedland on Wednesday, the 2nd of November, as he starts to speak to voters, canvassers and politicians. Then on Thursday, we have got a brand new podcast, Pop Culture with Shantae Joseph. Shantae is going to be digging deep into pop and internet culture to explore how it's impacting our lives. Search and subscribe to Pop Culture with Shantae Joseph wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today. The producer was me, Madeline Finley. The sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. And the executive producers were Max Sanderson and Maz Ebdehaj. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian.